0: <clears throat> well good morning how is everybody good good um well we've made it here to this point and uh since we didn't get to meet last week um i'm actually going to be preaching two uh full-length sermons today so um hope that you're <laughs> hope that thank you one of you laughed hope that you're uh prepared. Uh, last week, I was able to go to a church planting uh, conference, and while I was there, one of the speakers talked about uh, different moves of God uh, throughout church history, right? Like, so he, he and he laid the foundation um, for the various moves of God, the various works of God and, and God's spirit. And, you know, the most recent one would be like the uh, the Jesus movement of the 60s and 70s, the Pentecostal movement, um, with its emphasis on the spirit and uh, spiritual gifts. Then the uh, you know the the two great awakenings before that in the early Americas, um, with you know guys like Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield, this open air preaching with its emphasis on you know personal conversion, personal testimony. Um, he talked about the the Reformation, right, with like Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and all these other reformers with this emphasis on returning to the scriptures and reforming the church at the same time that the reformation was happening. There was this uh, like Anabaptist movement where uh, there was this huge emphasis on the priesthood of all believers and um, uh, kind of a decentralization of church uh, structure. And what this uh, guy at this conference was talking about is he, he was he was trying to figure out what they all had in common. Like retrospectively, we can look back and we'd be like, that was clearly a move of God. That was clearly a work of God. That was clearly a move of God. And so what is the common denominator between all of these things? And him and his family, they actually took uh, quite a few months and they went to like 17 or 18 different cities where these movements actually like began or actually started. And, um, you know, he, he thought it was going to be prayer. He thought it was going to be unity. He thought it was going to be the spirit. He thought it was going to be liturgy. He thought it was like all of these, all of these movements had their various emphasizes. But the one thing that all of them had in common is that God moved where he was wanted. The one thing that all of these movements of God had in common is that they wanted God, period. They wanted God. They didn't rely on their pragmatism. They didn't rely on their doctrine. They didn't rely on their buildings, their stuff, their you know uh, connections or their status. All they relied upon was the spirit of the living God. They they wanted the God who makes dead things and dead people alive. They want they wanted God in their own lives, in their own hearts. They wanted God in their hearts. They wanted God in their homes with their families, with their husbands, their wives, their kids. They wanted God in their churches and they wanted God in their communities. And this, this is my prayer for AGC. Not that, like, I don't, I don't care if we're remembered in, you know, hundred years or two hundred years, but this is my prayer that we would be a people so moved by God and so hungry for God to be in our what does John 17.3 say, This is eternal life. That you would know God the Father and his son who he sent. I, that, that's my prayer for agency. I was thinking about Isaiah 6 while this guy was talking too. Isaiah 6, what happened? There's this vision. Isaiah gets a vision of the temple of the Lord. He, um, he sees... The Lord, high and lifted up on a throne, and he sees the hem of his robe fill the temple. And there's these angels with six wings, you know, 6 they're, two they're flying with, two are covering their face, two are covering their feet. And they're singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. The foundations of the earth shook. Isaiah is seeing all of this. And his first response is, woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips. So he's, he see, he looks up, he sees the glory of the Lord and his first and how powerful it is. And his first response is, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean unclean lips. We then know that the, this, one of these angels, one of these burning angels takes a burning coal and touches his lips. And it says, you are there for, you are, you know, made clean. And then the next thing that he says is here I am, send me the, the, the pattern is observing the glory of the Lord saying, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips being purified by something so pure, in Isaiah's case, a burning coal, in our case, the blood of Jesus, and then saying, here I am, send me. That's what every Sunday here is for. Every Sunday, the reason we're gathering on Sundays, the reason we're planting a church is so that we can say, we we can see the glory of the Lord. We can repent and confess our sins. We can believe in Jesus who forgives our sins and he purifies us from all unrighteousness. And then we say, here I am, send me. We don't need to pursue anything else. Our Our labor is in vain if we're planting this church, you know, just to have something else to go to on a Sunday morning, just to add another thing to our schedule. Our labor is in vain if we're planting this church because we think we can do it better than somebody else down the road. Our our, our labor is in vain if we think that our stuff, our programs, our connections, our status, our whatever is going to get us. All we need to do is pursue God. Seek, what does Matthew say? Seek first The kingdom of God, and all of these things will be added unto you. Okay. Okay. Sorry. First, uh, first, first sermon done. Second sermon. If you uh, if you haven't already, turn in your copy of the scriptures to the Gospel according to Mark. We're going to be taking the next uh, six weeks or so, and we're going to be covering the Gospel according to Mark. So it it's going to six weeks is not a long time. So it's going to feel very fast. And we will be skipping chunks of Mark. We'll be, you know, skipping a little bit of one. We'll be skipping like uh, chapters three, four, five. We'll be skipping. So we'll be skipping chunks of Mark. Um, that's not going to be normal here at AGC. We are going to be eventually going through entire books of the Bible um, unit by unit. Um, but we, the reason we did this is because, you know, we launched April 3rd and then 2 weeks after is Sunday or is Easter Sunday and we as a church we're only uh, going to be stopping for two times a year we're going to be stopping during like the lenten season so palm Sunday and Easter and then we're also going to be stopping during advent um, the 4 weeks uh, leading up to and including Christmas so because of that we were like well you know we're launching April 3rd and then we jump into Palm Sunday and then we jump into Easter Sunday and since we are already going to be in mark for those two weeks we just decided to kind of backtrack Uh, and also, I mean, our name is Ankeny gospel church and what better way to start than with a gospel, uh, book. So all that to say is it is going to feel like a sprint, like we're sprinting through Mark, but I think that's a good thing because the gospel according to Mark is very fast paced. If you've ever read it in one sitting, uh, it's, it's feels fast. It feels like your wheels are spinning. Like you're like, okay, slow down, Mark, slow down. Mark. One of Mark's favorite words is the word immediately, right? Like, um. Immediately, this happened, and then Jesus went out here, and then immediately the disciples did this, and immediately the Pharisees, you know, scoffed or whatever. Like, it is just a very fast book. Now, what that doesn't mean is that Mark was thrown together. A lot of times, there's this like, um, assumption that because Mark is fast and because it's pretty terse, right? It's like there's not a lot of details. Um, it skips some narratives that are in Matthew and Luke. And so because of that, a lot of people think that Mark functions more like a highlight reel of Jesus's ministry. And then after they read Mark, they're like, okay, that was like the cliff notes. But now let's go to like, you know, Matthew or Luke to quote unquote, fill in the details, right? Like the, the temptation narrative is two verses in Mark. You know, immediately the spirit drove him into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with wild animals and the angels were serving him right? Like that is not, that is not helpful at all. And so what a lot of people do is they're like, okay, well, what does Matthew say about this? What does Luke say about this? Which if you're doing a study on the life of Jesus, that's good, but it's unfortunate because it's unfortunate to the gospel according to Mark for two reasons. First, it's unfortunate because Mark was the first gospel written. Mark, uh, John Mark is the author of this book, who is probably a disciple of Peter, who is definitely a disciple of Jesus. That's kind of like the, Um, lineage of, of this gospel account. Um, So Mark was the first gospel written, which means what? That the earliest Christians, all they had was the gospel according to Mark, which means that Mark thought that everything you needed to know to, to know Jesus, to love Jesus, to follow him was enough. So like everything that Mark wrote in the gospel, according to Mark, he thought that writing was enough to know Jesus, to love Jesus, to believe Jesus, to follow Jesus. You know what I'm saying? The second reason it's, an, it's unfortunate is it doesn't give Mark enough credit. To think that Mark is just a highlight reel and it's just the cliff notes, it, it doesn't give Mark enough credit. Mark had a very intentional purpose in writing this book. It was very intentional. There was intention in every story that was included and all the details that were included, all the details that were, you know, quote unquote, left out. All of it has an intention. We know this in other books, right? Other novels have a movie or other, other novels have a movie. Other novels have a purpose, right? And even movies, there we go. That's where I was going. Even movies have a purpose. Think about um, the movie Wizard of Oz. When I say this phrase, there's no place like home, right? You you know that phrase and that's kind of the, you know, meaning of the Wizard of Oz. Well obviously there's probably more than just one purpose, but the purpose of the Wizard of Oz is to basically say like, you know, the grass isn't always greener on the other side. Like, you know, bloom where you're planted. Like, you know, not everything is as it seems, type of a thing. Like that's the I'm sure there's more purposes to the Wizard of Oz, but that is some of the purpose of the Wizard of Oz. Books, movies, everything that we see, listen to, hear, watch has a purpose. The Bible, and specifically the gospel according to Mark, also has a purpose. And broadly, the purpose of Mark is to show us who Jesus is and invite us to follow him. Broadly speaking, generally speaking, the purpose of the gospel according to Mark is to show us who Jesus is and invite us to follow him. And so the next seven weeks, we're going to be exploring this uh, piece by piece, and we're going to watch Mark. Notice that we, we say uh, that Mark shows us who Jesus is. He doesn't, he doesn't tell us. Only one time, only one time in the gospel does Mark tell us who Jesus is. And that's in, we, are, we just read it, Mark 1, 1. And it says this, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is the only time where Mark says, hey, by the way, you person reading this or hearing this, this is what this story is about. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. he That's the only time he like tells us explicitly who Jesus is. The rest of the narrative, Mark is actually going to show us. Mark is going to be painting a picture of who Jesus is. He's going to show us um, how Jesus responds to certain people. He's going to show us what Jesus says to certain people. People, He's going to show us what miracles Jesus performs in certain situations, who Jesus heals. And over and over and over again, Mark is going to be showing us who Jesus is. The purpose of Mark is also to invite us to follow him. A lot of times, um, him being Jesus, a lot of times we don't think you know, that stories or narratives in the Bible have practical implications, which is like, why like 99% of sermons are from the letters of Paul because, you know, it's more you know, practical, which, which by the way, is a terrible way to view the scriptures as if there's some like self-help book where you can like read it and then get a, a nugget for the day on how to live and then go from there but that's beside the point but anyway we, this is what we do we go to a narrative we read us like like the gospel of mark we read a story maybe we see like there's some wisdom or there's some moral implication or some help and to uh, uh, lead us to living lives of holiness and, and godliness but then we you know flip over to paul and find out how to really live our lives But what's happening in the Gospel according to you laugh because it's kind of true. I laugh because it's kind of true. I do the same thing. But what's happening in the Gospel according to Mark is that it actually invites us to follow Jesus. Mark is going to bring in characters. Mark the author is going to bring in characters that respond to Jesus. So he's going to bring in characters, and they're going to be confronted by Jesus in some way, whether good or bad, like they're just going to meet Jesus in some way. And then there is going to be multiple responses to when they, uh, after, after they meet Jesus, some respond to Jesus, uh, in like they, they meet him. They either have a conversation or they witness a healing or he critiques them and they walk away in anger and bitterness some respond to Jesus in absolute fear and trembling and they have they're just terrified and they have no idea what's going on. Some respond to Jesus by not understanding him and being just absolutely confused and bewildered. And some, very few, but some respond in repentance and belief. And they are they, those are the ones that are healed. And by showing us these responses, Mark actually wants us to like get frustrated, with the lack of faith from the disciples which by the way in in Mark the disciples are by far the dumbest like they never in Mark they never get it they never get it they leave when we get to the end of Mark you'll see they literally leave Jesus alone and they never get reconciled with like at the end the end of Mark but anyway so Mark wants us to get frustrated with the lack of disciples or the stubbornness of the Pharisees um, he wants to get. He wants us to get shocked, like absolutely surprised, that the people who actually get it are these no named people. There's a lot of no named people in the Gospel according to Mark, most of which are women. You know, you have Simon's mother in law who gets healed, and she believes. You have this woman with internal, woman with internal bleeding you know, the Syrophoenician woman, you have all these no named women who actually are the ones to get it. And then he wants us to be even more shocked to realize at the very end of the story, when Jesus is crucified, a Roman centurion, a pagan, uh, uh, unclean Roman centurion is the one who says, truly this man was the son of God. All throughout the gospel, according to Mark, Mark is actually painting a picture of what true discipleship looks like. And he invites us to follow him. Now the structure of the book. Again, this is an overview, so we're going to get into Mark one here in a second. But this is kind of an overview. The structure of the book of Mark actually helps solidify that point, point. and you can see it on this little drawing here. I, I, uh, I did that myself. Um, pretty uh, pretty cool. Uh, the book is divided, uh, roughly, not neatly, but roughly into three sections. The first section is chapter one through eight, and this is where Mark answers the question, who is Jesus? The middle section is eight, the second half of chapter eight, chapter eight, chapter 10. And it kind of, Mark answers the question, okay, what does it mean to be Messiah? And the final, the final uh, section is chapter 11 to 16. And it's this idea of like how Jesus um, plays out that role of Messiah, so let's look at each section kind of as an overview, and then we'll, we'll dive into chapter one even more. First section is chapter one through chapter eight A, if you want to get specific. And Mark is answering the question, who is Jesus? We are getting a, a picture in this section of who Jesus is. And the number one question that is asked over and over and over again is, who is this guy? who is this guy? He just pops up on the scene as if you're in the middle of a, like you're watching, you know how sometimes you watch a play and the the curtain like lifts and it's like the beginning of a scene and it's like the beginning of a story. Well, the gospel according to Mark is almost like the curtain lift is lifting to start the story, but you're already like in the middle of a story because all of a sudden there's this guy, John baptizing, and there's this guy named Jesus and he's being baptized and then he's preaching and what's happened. Like you're just, you're just jumped, you're just thrown right into the middle of the story. And so the question that people always ask is, who is this guy? Who is this guy? Think about these examples. Who is this guy uh, that he teaches as one with authority, not as the scribes? Who is this guy that he forgives sins? Nobody forgives sins, but God alone. Who is this guy that commands the winds and the wave, the waves to obey him? Who is this guy? I thought he was the carpenter's son. Oh, this guy's just, just uh, uh, from Nazareth. Who is this guy is this guy elijah is this guy moses is this guy john the baptizer is this guy a prophet over and over and over again we see people asking who is jesus and the first section of the gospel according to mark is mark answering that question this is who jesus is he's the type of person that heals these people he's the type of person that draws these crowds he's the type of person that has compassion that touches lepers this is the guy who jesus is And then the second section of Mark is chapter eight B through 10. And this is personally my favorite, but this is where a huge shift in the narrative takes place. Um, And it's where Jesus tells his disciples what it means to be Messiah. Now, because Messiah in this time, Messiah was a loaded term, right? Just like the word, uh, the word president in November of 2016 and the word president in November of 2020 and the word president is going to be in November 2024. Like that is a very loaded term. It comes with a lot of visceral reactions and a lot of opinions, right? The term Messiah was a similar, uh, caused a similar reaction. And here's what I mean. Messiah is just, um, Messiah is just the, uh, Hebrew word. The Greek word is Christ and they're the same word. And it just means anointed one or one who will be and is king. And there were many messiahs in this time, um, in the first century, right? There were many messiah. There's one messiah, right? His name is Jesus and he's the son of God, but there were many messiahs in this time. And what they would do is these messiahs would kind of start in the more rural areas of Israel. They would start in smaller villages. They would perform miracles. They would do teachings. They would rally up a crowd and there would kind of be this like grassroots movement. And then what they would do once they got enough stirring, they would actually enter into Jerusalem, uh, and trying to storm Jerusalem and throw off the Romans, right? This is what Messiah's would do. Does that sound familiar? This is what Messiah's would do. And the whole time Jesus is in this middle section. Jesus is actually saying that Messiah's don't do that. And here's why, here's why they did that because they had, um, biblical, um, evidence for that. Look at, uh, Mark one 11 again, this is after Jesus' baptism. And he says, uh, Mark one ten says this, as soon as he, Jesus, came up out of the waters, he saw the heavens being torn open. He saw the spirit descending on him like a dove. And then this is what the voice from heaven says, you are my beloved son with you. I am well pleased. That first phrase, you are my son is a direct quote from Psalm two. It's Psalm two, seven. And what this Psalm is, is it's a messianic Psalm. It's a Psalm about the Messiah and it's where this uh, where Yahweh who is the Lord God capital lORd um, he actually has this Messiah this anointed one who is equal to Yahweh and this Messiah anointed one will rule the earth he will conquer evil nations he will crush wicked kings and he will establish his own kingdom on earth and everybody who is in that kingdom is blessed. This is the Messiah, and this is misinterpreted by uh, first century Jews because they believed that that was somebody, if, if the Messiah is somebody who's going to you know, kill the kings and crush the nations and deliver them from oppression, then where is Israel right now? They're under the Roman thumb. They're under Roman like enslavement. They're being taxed way out of their uh, minds, basically. They're being oppressed. They're uh, being taken advantage of. And so this Messiah figure is supposed to be one who is equal to Yahweh, and he will come in, he will kick out the Romans and he will establish his kingdom on Zion once and for all. And Jesus in this section tells his disciples three times, three times what it actually means to be the Messiah. And three times he says, the Messiah isn't this like guy that's going to take a sword to the Romans, but rather the Messiah is one who is the son of man. He calls himself the son of man. The Messiah is one who will um, actually be handed over. He will be beat. He will be mocked. He will be killed. And he will raise again from the dead. That three times, Jesus explicitly tells this to the disciples. And three times, they literally, they don't get it. Actually, after after every time, the next scene is like the disciples arguing over who's going to be the greatest, uh, who's going to sit at the left and right and of Jesus, and then who's going to, you know, yeah, be, be be the greatest, and it all comes to a culmination. This section, this middle section, comes to a culmination when Jesus says, "The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give His life as a ransom for many." And that's why this middle section is such so pivotal and so important, is because Jesus is redefining uh, redefining all these categories. Um, he's he's flipping it on its head, and that's when we get to the last section of chapters eleven through sixteen, which slow way down. You know how we were talking about earlier. The Gospel of Mark is a very fast-paced gospel. Well, chapter eleven to sixteen happens over the course of seven days, so it slows way way down, and it shows us how Jesus actually fulfills his role as Messiah, and it's not by being lifted up on a throne but by being lifted up on a cross. It's not by being crowned with a gold crown, but being crowned with a crown of thorns. It's not by getting praised, but actually getting mocked. It's not by being surrounded by other rulers on his right and on his left, but rather being surrounded by other criminals who are also being crucified on his right and on his left. It is by dying for the sake of others, not killing for the sake of others. It's not by, Mark ten forty five. it's not by being served, it's by serving and giving his life as a ransom for many. And what Jesus does is he actually invites us into the story. He invites us to respond to this message. The question is now, that brings us back to the beginning, what, what are we going to do with that message? Well, what is that message? What is the message that Jesus preaches? So if Jesus is being crucified for what he's saying, well, what is he saying? That led him there and then why why are we invited to follow him and in other words another way to ask this is what is the gospel what is the gospel now some of you probably just you know squirmed in your seat because you're like okay well i just joined a church plant and we have the name gospel in our we have the word gospel in our name and this new pastor just got up there and he says what is the gospel?" Well you're right in thinking that, but odds are we all have different articulations of the gospel. Like if I were to go around and ask every single one of you, which I'm not going to, but if I were to go around and ask you all to give me a summary of the gospel, odds are a lot would be similar, but also a lot would be different. You might start in different places, right? Some of you guys might start with, Um, God. Some of you might start with creation. Some of you might start with Jesus's birth. Some of you might start with um, Jesus's baptism. Some of you might start with Jesus's crucifixion, you know, but where, and then where you end might be different too. Do you end with the crucifixion? Do you end with the tearing of the veil? Do you end with the resurrection or the ascension or the spirit coming down on his people in Acts two, or do you end with God returning one day, you know, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of gospels out there right? Like there's people that say the gospel is just social justice for the poor, the widow, the orphan. There's people that say that the gospel is just atonement for sins. There's people that say that the gospel is just liberation from oppressive powers and systems. There are people that say that the gospel is just Jesus in my place or just Jesus's life, death, and resurrection. There's a lot of articulations of the gospel, but the question is not what we say the gospel is, But the question is, what does Jesus say the gospel is? Because if we start with a gospel, if we do not start, this is a better way to say it. If we do not start with the gospel that Jesus preached, odds are we will end up with a gospel that Jesus did not preach. And thankfully for us, Mark actually tells us what Jesus's gospel is. Let's look at Mark 1, 14 and 15, and this will be up on the screen as well. This is what it says. After John was arrested, Jesus went to Galilee proclaiming, which is the same word as preaching, the good news, which is the same word as gospel, of God. Okay, so Jesus is literally preaching the gospel. This is what Jesus is doing. He is preaching the gospel. And then it says this. This is Jesus's gospel. Verse 15. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Don't you wish my sermons were that short? Like, he's literally preaching the gospel, and he says, you know, what, two sentences? Two, maybe three sentences? No, two sentences, yeah. So let's break this down. The time is fulfilled. Another way to translate fulfilled is this idea of being complete, or reached its climax, or filled its purpose, right? When you, like, have a cup of water, and you fill the cup all of the way with water so that no more water can enter into the cup, the cup has fulfilled its purpose. It has... Completed its task. It has reached its climax, so to speak. So then the question is, well, it says the time is fulfilled. Well, what time? This is the time of the old age. This is the time of the evil age. This is the time of the limited presence of God. This is the time when the Holy Spirit fell only on a few people in a few places. It's a time where, you know, the presence of God was a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. It's a time where uh, the holy people, priests, had to do the holy things, sacrifices, in the holy place, uh, the temple. It's a time where if you wanted to worship God, you probably had to travel, tra- depending on where you lived, you had to travel miles up to a mountain, up to Jerusalem. Then you had to do all these ritual cleansings uh, of yourself and by yourself that sometimes took hours, days, weeks, and even months. Then you had to go into the outer courts and find a priest who would sacrifice your sins for you, but then that priest had to sacrifice the sins for a whole lot of other people. And then once a year, a priest could go into the Holy of Holies and sacrifice for all of the nation of Israel. It's a time where foreign rule, foreign oppression, foreign enslavement was just the norm for the people of God. It's a time where, listen to this, Moses, Moses, the man of God, cried out and said that he wished all of God's people had his spirit. It's a time where they were waiting for God to move, a time where they were waiting for God to change something. They were waiting for God to speak, to act, to to free his people. They, They had the one exodus out of Egypt into the promised land. They were now waiting for a new exodus out of slavery into a new promised land. They were waiting for a new land. They were waiting for a new life. It's a time where the law wasn't written on their hearts, but it was written on tablets of stone. Where their hearts were hardened. They were not made of flesh, but they were made of stone. And they were waiting for a deliverer. It's a time where the prophets were saying, eventually, eventually, in those days, in those days, this will happen, this will happen. And it was a time of silence. Jesus says, that time has reached its end. That time is fulfilled. His next phrase, the kingdom of God has come near. A better translation is this rule of God or this reign of God. When you think of kings, um, you think of their influence, right? Like the reign of King Henry VIII, everybody that was under king, everybody uh, who lived in that time, in that place was under that king's rule, that king's influence. One scholar says that it's the um The um, sphere of God's, I'm sorry, the uh, range of God's effective will. It's the range of God's effective will. It's the sphere of influence in which God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. It's this reign of God, this new world order. So what Jesus is saying is that God's effective will, his reign, his rule, the sphere of his influence and his kingdom has come near and will continue to do so. And this is a kingdom where God's people actually get to participate in God's love. It's a kingdom where the the spirit of the living God is in and among and through his people. It's the kingdom where, as we learn in the scriptures, the last will be first and the first will be last. It's a kingdom where forgiveness is the norm. Grudges are not held. Arguments are not devices. It's a kingdom where people are giving everything that they have to each other who is in need. It's a kingdom where no one is actually alone. No one is lonely because they have a family and they are a family in God. It's a kingdom where words are only edifying. They're only life-giving like Genesis 1 and 2. God's word is life-giving. We are in a kingdom. This kingdom has words that are life-giving, not words that are deceiving, uh, hurtful, or death-inducing. It's a kingdom where love of God and love of others is natural. It is just the norm. It's the kingdom where the needs of Of others are more important than the needs of the self. It's a kingdom where there are no more tears, no more pain, because the old things, the old time is gone. And the new things has, have come and he is making all things new. It's a kingdom where the law is actually written on the hearts and on the minds. You don't need teachers anymore because everybody just knows it. It's a kingdom where, what does Isaiah 11 say? The earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. It's a kingdom where every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Yahweh to the glory of God the Father. That's the kingdom of God and that's the gospel. That's the gospel that Jesus preaches and that is the gospel that Jesus himself is. Because as we continue in Mark, we'll see that Jesus Himself is both the proclaimer of the gospel and the content of the gospel He's proclaiming. It is in Jesus that the climax of Israel's story, or the uh, the Israel's story, comes to its climax. Where also all of humanity's stories comes to its climax. It's, Jesus is the the firstborn of the new creation. This is the new kingdom of God that will um, be brought about. Now the elephant in the room is that sounds like a great kingdom but I don't see it right now. That's good, but there's still tears. There's still anxiety. There's still pain. There's still brokenness. There's still lies. And there's still a a prince of the power of the air, as Paul says. Well, that's why Jesus says has come near, not has come fully. Jesus starts it. Jesus brings it in. Scholars call this the inaugurated eschatology. Another way to say that is the already not yet. Jesus inaugurated it. He started it, but it is not yet here because he will come again one day. He rose from the dead and ascended into heaven and he is going to return. Just like he came 2,000 years ago, he is going to return. And it is in and through his spirit. Jesus actually, when he ascends, he actually gives us himself. He gives us his spirit. It is in and through his spirit, God with us, that we can actually become a people marked by love and continue to bring about the kingdom of God, the uh, rule of God, the effective will of God in our lives and in the lives of those around us. You see, the gospel isn't necessarily about getting you into heaven when you die. It's more so about getting heaven into you. And how we do that is simple how does this happen? How do we do this? We do it very simply. Jesus says it right here. Repent and believe the good news. Repent. Turn away from the old age, from the age of putting your own needs above the needs of others. Repent from using your words to tear down and destroy rather than to build up life. Repent from using your own resources for yourself selfishly rather than sacrificially giving to those in need. Repent from trying to build up, here we go, your own kingdom, your own reign, your own effective will rather than God's kingdom, God's reign, God's effective will. So repent of that and believe. Believe that God is faithful. He did it before he'll do it again. I think that's what belief is. Belief that Jesus is faithful. Jesus is, but believe that Jesus is the messenger and the message of this good news. Believe that Jesus is making all things new. Sometimes we have this idea that, okay, well, I believe in God and I believe in Jesus and he can have, like he will transform, he will make uh, dead things alive. He will transform me. He will sanctify me. But there's this one relationship that is just, that's without hope. There's this one sin habit and addiction that is just, that's that's without hope. Je- I mean, Jesus can't change that. There's this one situation. There's this one vice. There's this one idol. God can have literally everything except that one thing. Now, believe that Jesus is making all things new. And it starts from within. And it starts in the, the most uh, unexpected areas and ways imaginable it starts in the heart this is the gospel this is what we're about the time has been fulfilled jesus in his self-giving act of dying on the cross defeated the powers of sin and darkness made us right with god cleansed us from our sin rose from the dead gave us the spirit so that we through repentance and belief in him can be made new so the question is then where do I where do I need to repent? Where do we need to repent, right? Confession is just as communal as it is individual. Where do we as a church, we here right here right now at AGC, where do we need to repent? Where do I need to repent? And then where do we need to believe? Where do I need to believe? Maybe there's that that idol that you're just like this is it's it's useless for Jesus to try to um, be the, the, the king of my heart in that area. So what we're going to do now is we're actually going to transition into a time of communion. Um, and what we're going to do every week from here on out is, is we're going to, uh, at the end of each sermon, we're going to reflect, we're going to have a time of reflection of confession of, um, response and at the start of it, after I'm done praying, we'll actually ask you guys to to stand up and to um, g- come up to these tables uh, in the front of the room and grab the elements for communion, go back to your seats, and then spend time in prayer and reflection and confession. And then in just a minute, um, a minute or two later, uh, Tom is actually going to come up and, and lead us in communion. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that Your word is truth. And I thank you, Lord, that you actually, um, you meet us where we're at and uh, you don't keep us there. I'm thankful that you are uh, the living word and that you have a relationship with us. It's not an archaic, um, stale relationship, but you speak to us today, Lord. You talk to us today. I pray that we would listen. Lord, I pray that we would listen. I pray that, Holy Spirit, you would open our eyes to see where we need to repent and you would open our eyes to see where we need to believe. Do this now, Lord, as we prepare for the table. We love you and we pray all of these things in your Son's name and by the power of the Spirit. Amen.